from the Quarterly Christian Spectator from March 1837. Religious Education of Children It is only a single aspect of this general and somewhat hackneyed subject that we now intend to present. We would urge, with more distinctness than we have done, the duty of training children to act from religious principle. There is much in the character of our times to impress us with the importance of this duty, and notwithstanding the increased attention that is given to it by many Christians and with the happiest results, still there is on the part of the majority a very criminal and disastrous neglect. We would do what we can, then, to arouse our whole church to the duty, and would insist that not only in the family in the Sabbath school, but also in the daily school, in the ordinary intercourse of life, and wherever children are forming their principles of action, Christians should use their influence to the great end of forming them to right principles, to the disposition and habit of acting, not according to their appetites and natural inclinations, as their law, nor according to the fashions and customs of society around them, nor in the subserviency to the interests of a party or the will of the multitude, nor with the ultimate reference to temporary emoluments and distinctions, but according to the will and with reference to the glory and favor of God, the disposition and habit of doing right, of consulting conscience, or in the language of the scriptures, of fearing the Lord. The importance of their being thus trained from their earliest years in the principal means of effecting it are the points to which our remarks will be principally confined. Children are early accountable to God, and therefore, unless brought to act from right principles, are in danger of being lost forever. It is a great mistake to suppose that they are not accountable till they are old enough to know God and be instructed concerning His revealed will. As soon as they have conscience, as soon as they have the feeblest sense of right and wrong, they are moral agents, and as such are accountable for their conduct. From that moment when they follow not their conscience but their feelings, when they choose a wrong and refuse a right, they are guilty before God. That this may not be very early, the nature of the case forbids us to possess any certain knowledge by observation or experience. That it is very early, the case is certain from the testimony of the scriptures to their early sinfulness, so early indeed that they mark off no period of life as transpiring before sin commences, but on the contrary they bring in the charge of sinfulness against the whole race. We do not hence infer that all who die early are lost. We hope that many are saved, but that they are saved without a renewal unto holiness who can believe, and at the same time acknowledge God to be holy and that from the time of their capacity of receiving moral impressions from without, they may not fail of being renewed to holiness, and so be forever lost in consequence of the negligence of those who ought to mold their feelings and bend their wills aright, how can we believe without shutting our eyes upon the plainest analogy of providence? Children, as all may see, are dependent on their parents or others in the place of parents for everything pertaining to their temporal subsistence and happiness. And why is it not reasonable to suppose that the same disposition extends in some degree to their eternal state? Do we see that being neglected by those who ought to take care of them, no tender mercies of God towards them prevent their starvation and death? What reason, then? Have we to suppose that if those to whom he has committed the means of forming them to the character of moral rectitude neglect to employ those means, they may not, in consequence, die and perish forever? That this is often the result with those who grow up to adult years irreligious cannot be doubted. Who shall fix the bounds previous to their reaching which the same result may not be realized in the case of their death? 
Children, as our remarks have presupposed, are early capable of being brought under the influence of religious principles and so becoming forever wise and happy. There is nothing either in their age or their depravity to make them incapable of this. As soon as they are capable of doing wrong, they are capable of doing right, and as soon as they can understand the feelings and wishes of others, they can come under a moral influence in favor of rectitude. Very early they may come under a religious influence, may understand some things of the feelings and wishes of God, may be instructed concerning their obligations and accountableness to him, may be awed by his majesty and melted by his goodness and brought under the influence of those motives generally which, by the Spirit of God, are made effectual to the formation of holy and religious principle. The child that reveres an earthly parent may be taught to reverence God. The child that is capable of a dutiful submission to the father of his flesh may be instructed concerning him, render the same submission to the father of spirits. The same ingenuous grief which he is capable of feeling for his offenses against the father or the mother that cherished his infancy, he may feel for his offenses against the source of being and of good, and that trust which he naturally reposes on his parents may be directed to God in the faith which saves a soul. There is nothing essential to vital religion of which children at an early age, being duly instructed, are not capable. This has been proved in a thousand instances at every period of the world, from the childhood of Samuel and David, as described in the scriptures, to that of Nathan Dickerman, John Mooney, Mead, Susan Cullock, and a multitude besides living and dead in our own day. Many have been brought to entertain a distinct faith and hope in Christ while very young, and have proved their sincerity by lives of consistent piety, and many others who have not come to the same joyful hope in their childhood have yet been gradually brought under the influence of religious principles, resulting at length in a character decidedly holy, and a hope of salvation sure and steadfast. It is no new or strange thing when the appropriate means are used with faith in God for him to ordain strength out of the mouths of babes and sucklings because of his enemies, that he may steal the enemy and the avenger. There are besides important advantages for bringing children under the influence of religious principle which belongs to no other period of life. There are peculiar traits of childhood which mark it as a forming period. Children, for instance, are inquisitive. They are so, if at all, encouraged respecting everything, and not less on subjects of religion than on worldly matters. How many questions do they put to their parents if once their attention to the subjects be excited concerning God, the soul, death, and the future state? With what delight, too, will they sit and listen to a familiar rehearsal of scriptural narratives, tell of the stories of Cain and Abel, of Abraham, Moses, and Samuel, or tell them of the birth, life, sufferings, and death of Christ, how will they hang upon our lips? What child, as soon as it can speak, does not ask to hear a story, or with what stories is a child better pleased than with those of the Scriptures? Delightful opportunity for pouring into the opening mind the principles of the fear of God. Children also are tenderly susceptible of impression. Their feelings are not grown callous by sin. Get the truth into their minds and they will feel. They will be likely to retain the impression, and though it may give way to other impressions, it will return and will remain to exert a forming influence on them when they shall see our faces no more. Children, too, are confiding. Deal kindly and truly with them, and they will not suspect us of an intention to deceive them, nor will they be forward to set up their own wisdom above ours. But if we give them good reasons for what we tell them and live accordingly, they will be apt to receive it as true and to treat it as important. 
It is not pretended that children are always and entirely such as we have described, but these are traits of character which belong to childhood more than to any other age, and they certainly present advantages which ought not to be lost. Were they duly improved, it is not to be doubted that a much greater proportion than we see of those who are born under Christian privileges would become pious in their childhood, and that the greater part of those who did not would be formed to a sobriety, intelligence, and conscientiousness of character, a respect for religion, a sense of its importance, and the habit of attendance on its institutions that would result in their ultimate conversion. There are also fewer obstacles to be overcome in bringing children under the influence of religious principle than are commonly found in the case of others. Their sinful propensities are fewer. They are not in general covetous, for they know not the worth of property, nor envious, for they see not the influence of worldly distinctions nor malicious, for though they may be angry, they are easily reconciled, nor unless they are cruelly neglected are they drunkards, or profane, or scoffers, or lewd, or liars. Yet how many, having passed their early days in habits of irreligion, become so? And what a fatal obstacle do such habits interpose to their ever entertaining as a practical principle the fear of God? In early childhood, sinful propensities are feebler as well as fewer than they are afterwards are more yielding to rational considerations, are more easily resisted and overcome. How much easier is it to induce a child to overlook an injury, or to deny himself for the sake of doing a kindness, or to give up a point concerning which he has set up his will, than to induce one to do this who has grown up with no sense of religious principle to govern him? And who would not sooner undertake to persuade a child to go alone and pray, or to take up the study of the scriptures, or attend earnestly to other means of salvation, than to persuade one to do this who has long indulged himself in estrangement from God? Nor are children in general armed against the truth by cherished errors. Ignorant they may be, but they are not atheists, nor deists, nor universalists, nor fatalists. They have not taken refuge from the convicting power of the truth in any of those strong delusions to which so many who have grown up in impenitence betake themselves, nor have they drunken the prejudices against the doctrines of the cross, its ministers and its professors, revivals of religion and all serious piety, which are so common among those who have long resisted light and conviction. Nor are their minds preoccupied with the cares of life as the minds of others commonly are. They have no families to provide for, no houses to build, nor farms to purchase or to cultivate no manufactories to establish or to carry on, nor openings for trade to enter on, nor sudden losses to mourn over, no political contests to wage, nor lawsuits to prosecute, nor angry jealousies and rivalries to pour upon. Golden hours, but they cannot last long. The stream of life is rolling on and will soon waft them into its busy scenes, and if they are not secured by religious principle, will but too probably involve them in the fatal errors and bitter prejudices and thorny controversies and cares by which so many are hardened against the fear of God. Establish belief of the truth, a tender conscience, and regular habits formed in childhood by the judicious care of pious parents or others may prevent it, but otherwise a graceless childhood is but too certainly followed by desperate depravity in maturer years.
See in how many sad instances everywhere these remarks are verified. Mark the multitude of the intemperate, the profane, the haters of God, the neglecters of his house, the revilers of his people, the sordid worldlings, and the unprincipled demagogues. How miserable now, and how little prospect of their being better or happier hereafter. Look over the history of these men, and we shall find that with few exceptions they have been trained from childhood to habits of irreligion. What these men now are, the generation that is following on, trained in the same way, will soon become. Who then that has tenderness in his bosom and faith in the eternal destinies of men must not be anxious while there is hope to prevent so fearful a ruin? Further, the influence to be exerted over others by those who are now in childhood will be salutary or baneful, according as they are early trained to the fear of God or accustomed to disregard it. In looking at the blessings or the ills of society, we are apt to expend our feelings on their immediate instrumental causes, not sufficiently considering that, as wave follows wave, the children around us are soon to succeed those who are now on the stage, and to perpetuate to remove the evils which we deplore, and to advance or destroy the good which we are laboring to promote. Great, far greater than we are they are apt to imagine, is the influence which, even now, they have upon each other. Many there are who, in tracing their moral history, may see that the final turn and shape of their subsequent course was decided by their playmates in the family, the neighborhood, the school, and the other scenes of their childish intercourse. There it was first that they learned to think disrespectfully of their parents and lightly of religion, that they were persuaded to break over the restraints of conscience and turn their backs on the institutions of the gospel. Or there it was that the discreet conversation and firm and consistent conduct of some religiously disposed communion had a power over their hearts and lives which was never lost. All that the scriptures say is that experience proves of the influence of companionship for good and for evil is true of the influence which children have upon each other. But they soon pass from childhood to youth, and then, with their growing intimacy and their strengthening desires and hopes, their influence over each other is greatly increased. That which is exerted by some single youth of talents, wealth, or other advantages may decide, for will or woe, the characters of the whole circle of his associates, may attach them to the sanctuary, the Bible class, in the evening lecture, or may draw them away, may bring them under the means of grace in some season of gracious visitation, or may persuade them to reject the counsel of God again against themselves, may by his direct intercourse and example win them over to Christ, or may corrupt them with infidel dreams or other fatal delusions. Pass some few years, and they are introduced to the more responsible relations and offices of life. They are parents training up their families in the fear of God or emboldening them to cast off his fear. They are parts of neighborhoods contributing to their influence to form the character of the schools, of the social intercourse, of the reigning sentiment and feeling there, and hand down that character to those who are to follow them. They are members of the civil community to hold its offices and receive its trusts, and to be teachers of schools and ministers of religion, to make the laws and be responsible for their execution, and to have the disposal of the Sabbaths, the institutions of the gospel, and all the essential rights, liberties, and privileges which have descended to us. They belong also to the great community of man to spread the gospel, to do good, to glorify God on earth, or to revile, oppose, or neglect whatever falls not in with their selfish desires.
How vast a difference whether the children of a town, a state, a nation, or any considerable part of them are governed from their early days and as long as they live by religious principle or by caprice, by fashion, by appetite, by ambition, or any other selfish motive. What man or angel can comprehend the difference in its results to themselves, to posterity, to their country, and to the world? Plant the fear of God in their hearts, bring them under the sense of that glorious being who controls all things, and of their accountableness to him for all their conduct, and they will be safe companions and virtuous friends, faithful parents and useful neighbors, good citizens and upright members of society, servants of God and brethren in the great family of man. But without this, as the prevailing principle of their lives, their natural disposition to evil will break over law and rule, as far as appetite and present worldly interest shall dictate, to their own undoing and the disorganization of well-regulated society. Who, then, that has a spark of benevolence, or any sense of his own responsibility must not feel himself obliged to exert his whole influence in favor of whatever may contribute to form them to the fear of God. The times especially demand this. We live in a day when unprecedented efforts are going on for the improvements of society and the promotion of human happiness, to improve the condition of the prisoner and the sailor, to break the fetters of the slave, and raise to honorable and happy life the nominally free, to search out the ignorant in the abodes of poverty and enlighten them, and the profligate in the dens of pollution and reform them, to encourage the drunkard to abandon his cups and dry up the sources of intemperance, to spread abroad the means of light, liberty, and salvation over this extending empire with the hope of perpetuating its free institutions, and to disseminate those means among mankind with the avowed intention that the work shall not cease until one song employ all nations is calling forth with increasing energy from you year to year, the counsels, labors, sacrifices, and prayers of the benevolent all over the land. A new era in the history of the world has come, and with every year its brightening glories are opened. But this whole work is very soon to pass into the hands of those who are now children, and their disposal of it will depend on their coming under the influence of religious principles. Let them be governed by the fear of God, by a strong sense of religious obligation, by the supreme desire to be accepted of God, and they will devote themselves to this work diligently, cheerfully, and with perseverance but otherwise they will do but little, and what they do will be done grudgingly, inconstantly, and ineffectually. But there are also other circumstances of the times which give special importance to the early character of the rising generation. The day is as much distinguished by the spread of atheism and infidelity, of irreligion and licentiousness, of hatred of Christianity and its institutions, of the prostration of law and importance of legal restraint, as it is by efforts to promote the reign of grace and to do good. What Christian can look abroad on the conflict that is dividing men and engaging on its opposite sides increasing numbers and with increasing determination and zeal and not be anxious that those who are coming forward around him take from the first the right side, the side of truth and of holiness, of law and of right against falsehood, sin, anarchy and wrong who can anticipate the approaching crisis and the final results of this conflict to the individuals engaged in it and to the world, and not tremble to find anyone in whose welfare he takes an interest on the wrong side. The changes of untold magnitude in our country and in the world will take place within their lives and by the agency of the generation now in childhood, 
there can scarcely be a doubt. What part any given number of them will take in these changes, those who are now forming their moral sentiments and habits are helping to decide. Teach them to act from right principle, and they will act firmly and faithfully. Teach them to shape their course to their worldly interests, credit, or convenience to the popular gale and the maxims of a time-serving policy, and they will follow the multitude to do evil. The responsibility, then, of those who have the power of influencing in any manner or degree the moral culture of the rising generation is great. Let them not fold their arms idly, deploring the evils which are abroad, but let them unite their influence to apply the remedy. Let them heal the streams at their source. Let them do what they can to bring forward the future members of society under a practical sense of their accountability to God. Among the more important means of affecting this, the first place must doubtless be given to parental influence parental instruction, discipline, and example. This both nature and scripture decide. Parents are with their children. They best know them. They have the firmest hold on their affections and confidence, have the easiest access to their consciences and hearts, have an authority over them that is absolute, and at the same time softened and regulated by a love for them which can neither be wasted by time nor overcome by undutifulness. All these things give them a power over their children that is capable of being transcendent. What they approve, their children approve. What they do, their children do. They, in the estimation of their children, are the wisest and best of all that is called human. They are in the place of God to them. Their will is law, and their smile is life and peace. God has given them this power, not that they should make themselves the exclusive objects of their children's love and obedience, but that they should leave their children by means of filial regards to himself as their main object and end. That they should bend their wills first to their own God, that they should train them to act from a principle of filial duty, and so prepare them to act from the higher principle of religious obligation, that they should leave their hearts to him as the object of their father's veneration and their mother's confidence and joy. The end which he has thus prepared and commanded them to seek, for which he has put the appropriate means into their hands and the corresponding susceptibilities into their children's hearts may be attained, may and ought to be pursued with lively hope of success. Let them apply themselves to it with this hope. Let them not be disheartened or diverted, though they meet with counteracting influences, though they feel themselves incompetent to the work though they see not the results which they desire. Let them go on amidst all difficulties with faith in God, and their labor shall not be in vain. As was said to Abraham, I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. And with equal assurance is said to every son of Abraham, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. How, then, shall it be sufficiently lamented that even among families professedly Christian there is so general a remissness on this subject, that, and not in a few, the voice of prayer is not heard, and in many more there is so little of the spirit and fervency which ought to glow in the morning and evening sacrifices, that in many the Bible is so little read, and the truths precepts and promises of the Bible are still less recognized in the habits of social intercourse, that not to keep the way of the Lord, to do justice and judgment, but to be 
become rich, to be in the fashion, and to make a figure in the world is a great subject of thought under which so many are trained. And that injustice, slander, reviling, and ungoverned passions are tolerated in them, or at least are treated as though they were less to be abhorred than an awkward bow or an ill-adjusted dress. Whatever show of religion there may be in them, their children are not trained to act from principle, to bring their conduct to the bar of an enlightened conscience, to live in the fear of God. Hence, the natural results in the subversion of social order, the prevalence of irreligion, and the ruin of souls. Parents are in fault. The Sabbath school has also a distinguished place among the means of implanting religious principles in young minds. Numbers are here taught the great things of religion, who would otherwise grow up in total ignorance of them, and those who are taught them by their parents at home come under the concurring influence of others with peculiar advantages. They come under a course of instruction, under a system of means, under the joint labors and prayers of the servants of God for their nurture and admonition in the Lord. The rich and the poor meet together, the young of every condition are assembled upon the same floor, are joined in the same classes, are taught those things in which they have a common interest, and in comparison of which their worldly distinctions are insignificant, dwelling from week to week successively upon select portions of Scripture, inquiring into the meaning of the words and phrases belonging to them, considering their practical application, and required to give an account of the whole in conference with their teachers, they get a definite understanding of them which they would not obtain in any other way, and by their examination of these they learn how to search the scriptures generally. By the same means their feelings become engaged. Beauties that had not been seen strike them in truths which in a desolatory way of presentation had made no impression, being dwelt upon and talked about, enter into the feelings of the soul, and multitudes of passages also in the form of references are committed to memory, many of them, so often as to become too firmly fixed to be ever forgotten, and such a number that in the course of a few years they amount to no small part of the sacred volume. The truths of Scripture also, and their application to innumerable actions and habits of life, by frequent repetitions, become fixed and acquire the influence of established principles. By the same means, too, preaching is better understood, and gains an earlier and stronger hold upon the mind. The result of the whole is a moral influence exerted upon the young, for which there can be no adequate substitute. It is well ascertained that the Sabbath school, wherever it has been for any considerable time maintained, is in fact among the most effectual preventatives of crime, while to many thousands it has been the direct means of their conversion to God, and is no doubt among the principal means of the increased number in latter years of those who have been added to the churches in early life. How vast must be the influence of this institution, adapted as it now is, wherever Christ is named, and assembling millions every Sabbath under its fostering care. Wise men, looking at its bearing on civil society alone, have united all over the world in commending it. No plan, says the author of The Wealth of Nations, has promised to effect a change of manners with equal ease and simplicity since the days of the Apostles, and, said her own distinguished Chief Justice Marshall, I cannot be more firmly convinced than I am that virtue and intelligence are the basis of our independence, and the conservative principles of national and individual happiness nor can anyone believe more firmly that Sabbath school institutions are devoted to the protection of both. End quote. 
But in regard to the Sabbath school as to parental influence, it is to be lamented that what is so well adapted to the most important results is not more vigorously applied. Scarcely anywhere is this system carried into full and proper effect. A multitude of children around the schools are not brought into them, are of course strangers to the sanctuary, and are growing up under every debasing and corrupting influence, and of those who are registered as members, many are irregular in their attendance, and a great number, it is feared, if a thorough examination was made, would be found to be very superficially instructed. As a chief cause of this delinquency, it is extensively a subject of complaint that a sufficient number of the more advanced and enlightened members of the churches, and particularly men of suitable age and standing, cannot be persuaded to engage in the office of teachers and to persevere in it with the zeal which they are accustomed to employ in other concerns under their hands, and indeed that the churches collectively manifest a little practical interest in the schools. Here are a large proportion of their children, their peculiar care and hope and joy, assembled from one Sabbath to another for appropriate instruction and admonition as children of the kingdom, and yet a great part of the members of the church, so far from being prepared or disposed to take part in the office or to meet at the monthly concert of prayer for them, do not even turn aside to ask how they they prosper, nor to appear to care by whom they are instructed, or whether they are instructed at all. They seem to be willing only to tolerate the school among them. They consent that those who please may engage in it and go on in their own way, but they will lend no helping hand. It ought not to be so. Of what avail are their prayers for the conversion of their children if they neglect the appropriate means? It is certain that something must be done by the churches or the great body of their children, and youth will pass out of their hands in unregeneracy, and at a time which, in such a case, promises little good concerning them. It is certain also that if they only tolerate their Sabbath schools, they will only go on, and it is no less certain that if they will arise and seek the Lord, he will be found of them. Common schools also ought to be schools of practical religion. The importance of their being so is strangely overlooked. Christians among us have insensibly been drawn into the popular sentiment that nothing more is to be expected to be taught in their schools than the first rudiments of secular education. Hence, like all other literary institutions dissevered from religion, they languish. In her own state, the legislative provision for their support is munificent, beyond example, and yet it is a subject of general complaint that her standard of common school education is not raised above what it formerly was, when no such provision was made, nor above that which is found in other states around us. The complaint, however, is that the standard of intellectual, not of moral cultivation, is so low. The business of education, it seems to be thought, lies with the understanding. It is to teach children to read and write, to spell and calculate. Or, if moral cultivations belong to it, this is the proper business of the Sabbath, not of other days, and of the family in the church, not of the common school. Some would even exclude the Bible from the school and forbid prayer. Sacred song, too, has been prohibited in some of the few instances in which the laudable attempt has been made to introduce it as an exercise to be learned, and in comparatively few schools is it required that there be any kind of religious acknowledgement in the form either of prayer or praise. Nor is it generally thought at all the province of a teacher to inculcate on the children of his school the fear of God, to form them to the habit of acting from principle, to insist upon their doing right because it is right, and their not doing wrong because it is wrong, to remind them of their accountableness to God, and press upon them motives of action drawn from the spiritual and eternal world. Such, most certainly, were 
not the views of our ancestors in establishing these schools, but such very extensively is the state of public sentiment among their descendants at present, and such is becoming more and more the case with every passing year. It is time to ask, is this a correct sentiment? Is it sufficient barely to cultivate the understanding? Is this all that is required to make men good citizens of the Republic, to say nothing of their becoming obedient and happy subjects of the moral government of God, with which, as some would falsely say, legislative provision should have nothing to do? No, certainly, if according to the testimony of all ages and people, there is a natural disposition in men to evil, which requires for its control all that the law and gospel of God can bring to bear upon it. Berkeley is well said, without a religious education, men can never be fit materials for any society, much less for a republic. And Thomas Chalmers, we have no faith in the efficacy of schools of any kind. In building up a virtuous and well-conditioned peasantry, so long as they are dissevered from the lessons of Christian piety, end quote and one greater than either under the sanction of inspiration. Righteousness exalteth the nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. If the lessons of all past experience may be depended on, it may be regarded as certain that should the time ever come, throughout this community when religion shall lose its hold upon the people when those who make the laws and those who administer them shall have no veneration for the gospel its institutions and eternal sanctions when temporal policy instead of religious principle shall govern their judgment and conduct then will the foundations of our social edifices be dissolved private vengeance will be substituted for legal administration of justice, and our free institutions will give place to a frightful anarchy until the throne of despotism is erected upon the ruins of the republic. It is altogether essential that our children, viewed as prospective members of the state, and much more, as destinaires of eternity, should be brought under the influence of religion. But if they should thus be taught anywhere, they should be taught it in the common school. Thither they all go. Many of them are never seen in the house of public worship. Many cannot be got to the Sabbath school, and at home many are taught only to swear, lie, and fight. But the great majority, even from the families of the irreligious, are at least occasionally found at school. There the greater part of our whole population between four and fourteen years of age spend six days of seven during one half, and many of them during almost the whole of the term. And these are the very years in which the rudiments of all that they are ever to be are commonly drawn in the characters which they form. What a glorious opportunity is here presented for all who love their country or the cause of the Redeemer to throw in their influence in behalf of both. Whatever they do to make our schools such as they ought to be will be felt to the ends of the world and while the world shall last. Do our readers ask? What shall we do? Take the following hints applicable at least throughout this state and some of them more generally. Attend the annual school society meeting and see that men be appointed as visitors of schools and committees of the districts whose moral sentiments on the subject are right, who feel the importance of a religious influence to be exerted in the schools, and who will do what they can to promote it. Be willing yourselves to serve in these offices when called to them as far as your other duties permit. And though sacrifices are required for this purpose, cheerfully make them, as you would be willing, when able, to give ten or fifty dollars of your earnings to send the gospel to those who are perishing without it. I would pause for a moment here to remind my listeners of this cassette. This was written in 1837, so doubtless ten or fifty dollars is a little different than it is as I speak in 1989. 
attends a district meeting when a teacher four-year school is to be selected and the arrangements for the season are to be made. If you have no children to send, still attends a meeting is one who feels an interest in what so directly concerns the welfare of society and the church of God. You probably would attend if the question to be decided was a levying of a tax of a cent upon the dollar. Why will you not attend when the question is, who shall have the daily care of molding and governing thirty or fifty young immortals around you for four or five months of the most precious part of their lives? In the choice of a teacher, let him be a man whom the children will respect, for if he command not their cordial respect, it is impossible that he should maintain over them a forming influence. Let him be a man of competent talents and acquisitions, otherwise he can neither be respected nor useful. Let him be a man who will treat the scriptures with reverence and call the attention of the school to their truths, who honors the Sabbath, and whose example generally is that of one who fears God. And let him, moreover, be a man who will pray in the school, for if he does not, to what purpose will he inculcate minds of the children? When you have the offer of such a man, do not lose him for the sake of saving a few dollars. It is to be regretted that so many of our excellent young men, such as used to be teachers in our schools go into other employments. If increased wages would call them back, their wages, both for their own sake and that of the schools, ought to be increased. That our schools be furnished with competent teachers ought to be deemed indispensable. Next are bread for our families, and the ordinances of grace on the Sabbath should be ranked a good common school. We cannot do without it. Nothing will prosper without it. Occasionally visit your school. Let the children and their teachers see the interest you feel in their improvement. Tell them what is expected of them, what is the end of their being, what their main concern. By all means, sustain the authority of the teacher in a school, even though in particular cases he should err, as who is there that is not liable to err. Unless there is evidence of perverseness in the error, it is better to overlook it than correct it in such a way as to impair his authority. Though your own child refuses submission, and you are convinced that the demand made on him is unreasonable, still if you do not mean to ruin both your children in the school, let him understand that the teacher is to be obeyed. If he is of competent age to understand, show him why you insist on this. Get his reason and conscience on the side of obedience, but insist at any rate on obedience to everything enjoined that is not sinful. Once let the children of a school triumph over the authority there, or even consider it as belonging to them to decide whose will shall prevail, theirs or their teachers, and you prepare them for insubordination to all government, human and divine. We have been thus particular in our remarks because they relate to things on which the main use and end of our system of common schools depend, and in respect to which there is a very general and growing remissness. Few, perhaps, are the schools for which those friends of Christ who are connected with them, can do all that they might wish, but few also are those for which they might not, by concert and perseverance, do much, and having begun, do more and more. We would add a few words respecting the character of the books that should be adopted in our schools. Did we clearly see how the change to be desired could be accomplished? Plain it is that if moral as well as intellectual culture is the object of the school, the books used there from the alphabet to the grammar and philosophy ought to be adapted to it. If the truths of the Bible only is written in the heart can form men to answer the purposes of their being, those truths ought to be made the basis of education. They ought to be incorporated into the reading lessons, the geography, the history, the grammar, the philosophy, and whatever else is taught the opening mind. If the, in the language of Moses, we ought to bind them for a sign upon our hands and to put them as frontlets between our eyes and to write them upon the posts of our doors and upon our gates, to place them where our children will be always meeting them and from their earliest years be trained to associate them with their daily employments and dearest delights. We have spoken of the family 
The Sabbath school and the common school is affording efficient means of training children to the principles and habits of religion, and to these should be added, is a vital spring of all, the Church of God. This is the pillar and ground of the truth, that on which the existence and influence of the truth among men entirely depend, which is, therefore, responsible for a due application of all the means of diffusing it, and for its recommendation and persuasive power by the spirit of holiness exemplified in the sight of all men. That was from the Quarterly Christian Spectator, Volume 9, Article 1, 1837. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.stillwater.com swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.